0: And as we journey with Abraham through Lent, we've been asking two questions: How does the Abrahamic story relate to our individual personal Lent journey, and how does it relate to Junction Ten, our history, our present, and our mandate going forward? And do you feel that God's been speaking? Is God speaking. I hope so. So just locating the story of Abraham, uh, it's one of the very first historic accounts in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. So we have the creation story with Adam and Eve. Um, We've got Cain and Abel. Then we have Noah and the flood. Then the tower of Babel. And then Abraham is the next significant event in that story of Genesis. So really, really, really early on in the biblical accounts. Have you been reading Abraham in Genesis? Yeah, yeah, lots of nods, that is brilliant. If you haven't, there's still time, but let me do a very, very quick recap. And I will say that you can catch up the series on podcast as well. But here we go, the story so far. Vicky started the series with Genesis 11. Abraham's father took the family from their birthplace and settled in Haran. Abraham's married to Sarah, who is beautiful, but unable to have children. (coughs) Genesis 12. Abraham, at the age of 75, hears the call of God to go to a land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. So Abraham sets off, not knowing where he's going. He gets to Canaan and the Lord appears to him and says, your offspring, will I will give you this land. There's a detour to Egypt because of a famine where Abraham, afraid of being killed on account of his beautiful wife, uh, tells his wife to pretend that she's his sister. Pharaoh likes how beautiful Sarah is and takes her as his own wife. God then inflicts lots of serious diseases on Pharaoh who isn't very happy because of Sarah. So Pharaoh gives Abraham back to Sarah and says, go away. Genesis 13, when the family get back to Bethel, um, Abraham and his nephew Lot decide to part company. God again tells Abraham that his offspring, this time will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. Genesis 14, Lot gets into trouble and he's taken captive by invading kings. Abraham hears about this, rallies an army, defeats the invading kings, and recovers Lot and his wife. Genesis 15, God again tells Abraham he will have a son who will be his own flesh and blood and that the offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Genesis 16, Sarah's a bit fed up of waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled. So she says to Abraham, sleep with Hagar, my maidservant, and then I can build a family through Hagar. Abraham thinks this is a rather good idea and Hagar does conceive but then despises Sarah and this is the start of some major problems between the two women. Hagar runs away but God tells her to go back and she gives birth to her son Ishmael, by this time Abraham's 86. Genesis 17, God appears to Abraham yet again with exactly the same promise of him being a father of many nations This time he tells Abraham, Sarah will be the mother of nations and that she will have a son. Listen to this, Abraham laughs in disbelief. So I want you to remember that for later. Abraham still tries to get God to follow his and Sarah's plan and asks God to bless their son Ishmael and for Ishmael to live under that blessing. God indeed does say that he'll bless Ishmael and he'll make him a great nation, but that Sarah is going to have a son and name him Isaac. And it's through Isaac that God's covenant would be established. Are we all caught up now? Brilliant. So this brings us to Genesis 18, the reading that we heard earlier. And thank you, Rachel, for that lovely reading. This is where the three visitors show up. And I can slow down a bit now. And breathe, like Rachel said earlier. So the first thing to notice in this story is that the author has let us into a secret. It's a literary technique, and it's there to let the reader know that Abraham is visited, not by three men, but by God and his two angels. And we the reader know this, but at this point in time, Abraham is clueless, is completely unaware. And a good question for us at the start of this part of our Lent uh, sort of um, sermon is, how does God show up in your life? How does God show up in your life? We see from the potted history of Abraham's life, that God had shown up quite a number of times, calling Abraham on that journey, but doesn't tell him the destination. And again and again, when God shows up, he speaks the same promise of Abraham being a father of nations. But on this particular occasion, at the start of Genesis 18, Abraham does not know it's God. And I wonder how many times we don't recognise when God shows up in our lives. You know, I've met people who say they have a sense of God's presence being with them all the time. Annoying, yes, but if that's you, mm-hmm. bless you. <laughs> Others of us um, are not always aware of God's presence. In fact, some people say that they're almost never aware of God being with them and rarely aware of his presence. Um, And if you think that's unspiritual, think about Mother Teresa. Um, She had a very long life, but the last 50 years of her service and dedication to God, where she was tending the most needy and poor of society with a deep sense of God's absence. And her private letters show a woman of great faith but who felt for those 50 years a vast silence and emptiness and at times felt dryness, darkness and doubt. And I think that's a bit of an encouragement for any of us who sometimes feel as though we're failing God because we're not quite aware of his presence. But Abraham, on the other hand, he's one of those rather annoying Christians, or not Christians at the time, but believers, who encounters God quite a few times. And up until this point in time, God has spoken easily and intimately as a friend with Abraham. But in Genesis 18, there's something uniquely and unusually vivid and physically immediate and somewhat mysterious about Abraham's encounter. So going back to our passage, the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them, and he bowed low to the ground. So we know, as the reader, that it's God because the author uses the word Yahweh, which when translated in our English Bibles, has a capital L for Lord. So wherever you see capital L for Lord, we know it's talking about the divine. But Abraham sees men. And unlike all the other stories, God doesn't announce himself to Abraham, who's left to discover the identity of his visitors as the encounter unfolds. So Abraham sees them, runs out from his tent and greets them, saying, If I found favour in your eyes, my lord... Do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be bought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way. Now that you have come to your servant. Very well, the visitor's answered, do as you say. Now, although Abraham says my Lord here, notice that it's a lowercase l, which is the word Adonai. And that's a form of respect. It's not necessarily a recognition of a deity. It's very clear Abraham thinks these are three men. So Abraham rushes off to prepare a meal, or rather he rushes off and tells his wife and his servant to prepare a meal. A few giggles round the room at that one. Um, Now if you were part of Junction 10 last year or so, you'll recall that we did a Sunday teaching series on hospitality. Anybody remember Sunday series on hospitality yet? Thank you. Um, And if you missed it, again, you can get it on podcast. But I think a question for us as Junction 10, as the corporate church, is how do we continue to flow in hospitality? How do we continue that flow of hospitality? Because in that series, we highlighted the importance of hospitality in Hebraic culture. The cultural norm was something that actually set the Hebrews apart because often visitors were strangers and they were vulnerable and at risk when traveling into foreign territories. So the culture of hospitality was actually rooted in a deep desire to please God by showing love to others in need. And it is still considered one of the most important Jewish values. Hospitality is at the heartbeat of community. And I think that speaks very clearly into the Junction 10 Abrahamic journey to build community with Jesus at the centre. And if you think that's all Old Testament, Jesus himself, 18 centuries after Abraham, tells his disciples and us, that the most important thing that we can do in working out our salvation is to offer a cup of water to the thirsty, to offer food to the hungry, to clothe the naked and to visit the prisoner. In fact, Jesus says on judgment day, he likens them to sheep and goats, and that's how he said he will separate the sheep from the goats. And then the the Apostle Paul in Hebrews 13 verse 2 writes this. Do not forget, so it is easy to forget, but do not forget to show hospitality to strangers for by so doing some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. How about that? When we welcome the stranger, we might be welcoming an angel but when Genesis 18 initially talks about the visitors, God's appearance to Abraham is in the flesh. And the particular mystery about the nature of the visitors is that Abraham has no idea he's with God despite the many times God has previously appeared to him and talked to him. And this leads to our next question. How do we, in our Christian walk, discern whether it's people or whether it's God and his angels. And this bit of the Abrahamic story can get a little bit confusing as sometimes the author refers to the visitors as them and at other times it seems like there's only one visitor, he or the Lord, sometimes one, sometimes three. And Christians have wondered about this ambiguity of the visitors, one or three, and their nature, divine or human, as possibly hinting at the three person of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I guess another question for us is, as individuals and also as Junction 10 Church, how do we become more aware of God's presence, the presence of Jesus and his Holy Spirit. So at this point, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask my lovely wife, Vicky, to come up and tell a very short, um, I'll say story, it's not a story, it's it's something that happened uh, when she was uh, a little bit younger. So let's welcome Vicky. I will be
1: brief, don't worry. Um... Yeah, this happened when I was a student, so a few years ago, I was a student at Lancaster, and we were going, there was myself and two of my friends, and we were going to Manchester to meet another friend. We were going to an event, and we were going for pizza before that. Um, So we went on the train, the train was quite late, um, in the middle of Manchester, before Google Maps, and we thought we knew where we were going, and we got lost. So it was about November time, so it was dark, early, um, wandering around these streets. Somehow we asked a few people, but nobody seemed to kind of point us in the right direction. I'm not so old that we didn't have mobile phones, because we did. Um, and we did text the person that we were meeting. We were going to be late, but we were thinking we are going to miss this dinner reservation. And actually, we all felt quite anxious. I would have been about 19, And a bit vulnerable in the middle of a city, in the dark. And out of nowhere appeared a gentleman. um, And he said, are you lost? And we were like, well, we're trying to find uh, Pizza Express. And he said, I'll show you the way. Now, we were three girls in the middle of the city, in the dark, already a bit panicked. And none of us didn't think to go with this man. Straight away, we all just followed him. He got an umbrella and he went just this way. And we went through all these little back alleys, so it seemed. We just followed him. And there, all of a sudden, was Pizza Express. And we turned to say, oh, thanks. And he was gone. And my friend, who's a Christian, the other friend wasn't, she just turned to me and she said, we've just met an angel. And we didn't disagree with that. and we didn't, That wasn't light when she said that. Because as soon as he was there, there was peace. He was just gone.
0: So, very little story. Thank you very much. And I know there's other people here who've encountered angels. And I suggest that more of us have encountered angels than we've actually realised. Thank you, Vicky. Somewhere in the story, Abraham does recognise that he's speaking with God, because the language changes in the way he addresses the visitors. But it's not clear exactly where in the story this realization happens. I think that's on purpose. I think the author is purposely doing this because it's meant to be ambiguous. Because you know what? That mirrors our life of spiritual experience. Often there's rather a fine line between meeting God and meeting others and in recognising that in meeting the stranger, we've met God. Now, the directors of the film, Bruce Almighty, anybody watch that? Yeah. A few? Oh, brilliant, yeah. Um, they made the point really well. The TV career, if you don't know, of Bruce Nolan, played by Jim Carrey, has been stalled for a while. And when he's passed over for a coveted promotion to Anchorman, <laughs> He absolutely loses it and he complains to God uh, that God is treating him poorly. Soon after that, God, played by Morgan Freeman, actually contacts Bruce and offers him all of his powers if he thinks he can do a better job. Bruce accepts and goes on a spree using his newfound abilities for selfish personal use. He also tries to answer all of the prayers that are coming into him on a daily basis, hour by hour, minute by minute. And all of this results in a series of disasters which lead to a complete change of attitude and a transformation of Bruce. However, through the story, there is a small, relatively insignificant part played by the actor Jack Josephson we don't even know what the name of his character is. Is a homeless man who never says a word? But at various points in the film, he gives messages to Bruce by holding up cardboard signs, which Bruce either ridicules or ignores. However, at the end of the film, you see this.
1: I'd like to introduce you to the future Mrs. Exclusive, Grace Connolly. Oh, yeah. Grace, Grace. Yeah. Isn't she beautiful? She just gave blood and she still has enough left to fill up her face. Yes, behind every great man there's a woman rolling her eyes, folks. I'm Bruce Nolan for Eyewitness News with all the folks down here at the blood drive reminding you to. Be the you heard him. Okay, cut
0: it. Thank you, Bruce.
1: Thanks, Allie. That That was great. Yeah. That was really great. Now you still have to go over there. The nurse is waiting. Do I have to? Oh, it's not gonna hurt. Mm. In fact, I think you'll find it quite pleasurable. Future, this is exclusive. Thanks, Zach. So,
0: for those on the podcast, the face of the homeless man, Jack Josephson, morphs into Morgan Freeman God. And for me, this speaks profoundly to the way that God sometimes shows up in our lives, an idea that continues into the New Testament. Because in a very similar way Jesus himself appeared to the disciples on the Emmaus road and he spoke with them for the length of the whole journey without being recognised by them. It's only when they got to the hometown and they insisted that Jesus did not continue on his journey beyond the town but that he stay with them and they have a meal that as Jesus gave thanks and broke bread their eyes were opened they recognised it was Jesus and then He just disappeared from the sight. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever realised after the event that it was Jesus? But you might not have recognised it at the time. See, had the disciples not welcomed a stranger on the journey with them, if they hadn't insisted on offering hospitality, they would never have recognised they'd been with Jesus. But they're said afterwards, did not our hearts burn within us? Let me ask, is it possible that sometimes we might be missing Jesus? Are we intentionally looking for the stranger, the marginalised, the poor, the homeless, the prisoner? And I have to admit, sadly, in the majority of cases, I have to say, No. I give financially to causes that reach those communities and through my church, tithe and offerings, I'm supporting the various projects and initiatives that Junction 10 invest in. And you know what? All that's great and good and I encourage everyone here to do the same. But as good as that is, how much might I be missing Jesus by not personally ministering to the poor and the homeless and the hungry and the prisoner by ignoring rather than welcoming the stranger. How about us, Junction 10? Vicky and I discovered a really wonderful book called Chasing Francis a few years ago. It's a novel about a pastor called Chase and, and Chase is the pastor of a really large, successful megachurch in America. Yes, it has to be America, doesn't it? But a big, successful megachurch. And he reaches an existential crisis as his evangelical approach to Christianity begins to fail him. And this comes to a real crisis after the death of a young girl in his congregation that causes him to question some of the elements of his faith and some of the ways that his church is working. Struggling with a growing sense that his church seems to be missing the point, he begins to journey through a dark night of the soul and a spiritual crisis which results in a forced sabbatical. So his trustees insist he takes a forced sabbatical. So he, he ends up pleading for help to Uncle Kenny is an uncle who's a semi-retired Franciscan priest in Assisi in Italy. There's only one part of the story, um, there's lots of parts of the story, but there's one particular part of the story where Pastor Falson is taken by the Franciscan monks to the homeless shelter. And and, and he gets some really um, profound eye-opening experiences, but then he's taken to an AIDS hospice and he's required there to help bathe one of the men, to give a bath to a very poorly AIDS victim. And initially finding even the thought of touching the frail naked body of the man repellent, something profound happens when Pastor Fallon does eventually yield and help bathe this man. And at this point, Pastor Fallon says, I think I just became a Christian. Now it's only a novel, but it is illustrative. It's speaking to some of the elements of faith that can be pushed aside or ignored or lost when we become successful at doing church, but miss the importance of spiritual formation in following some of the harder or unappealing parts of Jesus' teaching. So I want to end now with a final point. And I want to loop back to what Phil Miles was talking about last week, the promise. Genesis 18, verse 9. Where's your wife Sarah, the visitors asked him. "There are in the tent, he said, that's Abraham. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, in order to understand this promise, we need to remember, remember I asked you to remember, in chapter 17, that Abraham had laughed, absolutely laughed at the thought of Sarah having a child because they were both so old. And bear in mind at this point, as we said earlier, Abraham and Sarah already have a son, Ishmael, through Hagar, the servant. Now, next week, Phil Miles will be picking up that point about what it's like sometimes to be the other, to be the Ishmael. But that's next week, I won't get ahead of ourselves. So, in chapter 17, the chapter before this one, rather than believing God, Abraham laughs and instead asks God to bless Ishmael. God, in his kindness, does say that out of Ishmael will come a great nation. But God also says that Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. Out of that one single decision by Abraham and Sarah comes Ishmael and a level of global strife and trouble that continues to this day. Back to our story in Genesis 18. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after, I'm, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? It's now Sarah's turn to laugh in disbelief. So what does this mean for us? I think the question at the crux of this part of the story is a question about how we discern and follow God's will in our lives. You know, Sarah, in fairness to her, she'd done what seemed to be good to her and to her husband. But as far as we can tell, she hadn't sought God or heard from God about the course of action that led to Ishmael. In fact, she and Abraham had doubted that God would bring his promise through her. They were laughing at that idea. So they took what seemed to be, to them, a good decision. And in the story of Abraham and Sarah, it's great to see several things happening that give us all hope. This person, Abraham, who's described in the New Testament as the father of faith, who's got great faith, he's got great obedience, but he also gets it wrong. He messes up. And even when his actions result in a colossal fail, somehow God is able to bring beauty out of the ashes. But you know what, Junction 10? How much better to avoid the ashes? How much better to avoid creating an Ishmael? How much better when we hear clearly from God to trust him to make a way? And for us not to move into disobedience by trying to make things happen in our own way, our own time, our own strength. And I'm going to conclude by drawing on some ancient vocabulary in spiritual formation about active and passive spirituality that may help us think about our own Abraham Lent journey, how it relates to us individually and corporately as a church. And although in Western culture, for the past century or so, we've seen that active is a good thing and passive has got quite negative connotations, this is not how the words were seen and used in the ancient understanding of spiritual formation. In that context, active means the things that you do to develop your relationship with God. These might be things like your quiet time. It might be things like prayer, fasting, It might be coming to church, being part of a journey group, a small group. And it's definitely about being obedient when God speaks. Active spirituality is our responsibility and it's the way we play our part in our spiritual formation. Passive spirituality, on the other hand, is the opposite. It's those aspects of our spirituality where God is the one doing something in us and with us and through us. It's initiated and carried out by God alone. Don't mistake passive spirituality as weakness. Sometimes the most courageous thing that you can do is to do nothing, to not make something happen, or to lay aside that thing that was your promise and your dream. You see, passive spirituality can sometimes feel like things are out of our control, or even sometimes against our will. It's where God speaks and we pray, not my will, but your will be done. And King David is a great example of passive spirituality. He'd been found and anointed by the prophet Samuel, nothing to do with David's own efforts. And although David was anointed king, he refused repeatedly to kill Saul to make his kingship happen in his own strength. Sometimes the hardest thing to yield to is God. When the direction he takes us makes no sense and might feel like sacrifice and pain and suffering. Have you ever experienced that? Yeah. I think Junction 10s had its share of experiencing that. I think about demolishing the building at 323 Wolverhampton Road and being told to build a community with Jesus at the centre, completely at odds with the plans that the leadership had and completely insane and crazy to the world around us. Not what we'd normally expect, but not our will, but yours. Active spirituality, if we're not careful, and this is a bit rife in modern Christianity, can feel like we're in charge. It can feel like if we don't do it, it won't happen. And so we follow our plans, which are often linear and have relatively short timeframes, and they take us in all sorts of directions, that eternal God who rarely works in linear ways or to our timings, never intended I think this is what happened with Abraham and Sarah. They'd waited a long time, took matters into their own hands. Sarah telling Abraham to sleep with Hagar, trying to make God's promise happen through their own means rather than trusting and waiting on God. And thank you for the prophetic words and the encouragement that was given in the worship today that resonates and echoes with that. I mean, Abraham and Sarah might say if challenged, well, God didn't stop us. Surely if this wasn't his will, he would have stepped in. And I've heard that a little too often from Christians. But it's a flawed presumption that God will stop anything bad happening to us when we take active spirituality too far and we follow our own course of action to make God's promises happen. You see, on the other hand, passive spirituality often involves things that take a very long time to work through to their end point. Yet the promise may come quickly, and it may come frequently, but its fruition is by the slow work of God. And so patience, trust, and surrender are key, especially when, in the natural, we might become frustrated and feel that the promise will never happen. So if we've heard clearly from God, but the years are passing by, we do need to be very careful about how we discern God's will and not just make seemingly good decisions that appear to align with what we think God wants because too often we might be pursuing what we want and how we think God ought to do it. So if I could ask the band to come back and gently play, I just want to give us a little bit of time to reflect. As we've gone through Lent, we've been asking these two questions on the screen. What does this mean for you individually on your Lent journey? And what might God be saying to us corporately as Junction 10?